In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. We talked last week about a book uh, that I read called uh, When Man Listens by Cecil Rose. He talks about this, um, this practice that we have as Christians that we've talked about many times before, and that is that we're called daily to be listening to the Lord, to be waiting upon Him. That's one of the things that we do as Christians. We have a daily time set aside where we wait for the Lord to speak to us. Mr. Rose puts a slight twist on this. He suggests or recommends that when we have our daily time of listening, we have a pen and paper in our hand. He compares this to a supervisor at work and uh, an assistant who has a list of things that is being given to them to do. And the good assistant is ready to take some notes knowing that they won't remember everything that the supervisor tells them to do. And he says this is exactly the situation that we're in with the Lord. We can't hope to remember everything uh, that he tells us. And so if we're going to have an attitude of uh, alertness, an attitude of Uh, being prepared to follow the things that the Lord tells us to do, we'll be sitting with that pen and paper. Well, I made the mistake of following this advice. As Mr. Rose said, the problem with listening to the Lord is he's going to tell you to do things you don't want to do. Now you've got it written down on paper, so it's even harder to dismiss it. I found the Lord telling me that I was supposed to update my will, which for me would be like going to get a tooth pulled. Aaron and I went and we looked at our wills and we found them uh, sorely out of date. Harry wasn't listed in the will and we've had three children since then. So we had to update that. The people that we had uh, designated to take the children in the case that Aaron and I both died, uh, some had moved away. And so we had some work ahead of us. And so we spent uh, the last week updating that. As I was doing that will and I was thinking about where we're at and uh, what we have for the children, I really started to think about, uh, of course, what's essential in the provision of inheritance. The thing that I most want my children to inherit is a love of God and a desire to serve Him. And this is, I think, exactly what Ecclesiasticus is writing about, that the inheritance that we give uh, to those who uh, come after us is an inheritance of godly submission uh, to the Lord. Ecclesiasticus is written in about 175 BC. Uh, This name could easily be confused with Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is that book uh, by Solomon that's usually put after Proverbs in a typical uh, King James style Bible. Ecclesiasticus is part of that Deuterocanon, that time between the return from Babylon and the coming of Christ. Uh, Jesus ben Sirach was a rabbi teaching in Jerusalem in about 175. This is when they're under the rule of the Greeks. He had a school there and he had a, uh, a lot of work. He dedicated his life to summarizing the rule of life and to summarizing the way in which we're supposed to live godly lives. He's here in chapter 44 about to introduce this idea that we have role models that we all have to have in the uh, walk with God, we have to have people to role model our life after. We'll be lost without them. And of course, he names these very important role models in the subsequent chapters. He goes to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to uh, Abraham and Sarah and to, to these uh, you know, luminaries in the faith that we have to 
uh, model our lives after. But then he makes this note before he goes into this long list that there are some people who have lived lives that we don't know anything about. In other words, that don't have memorials. Their names aren't on the sides of buildings. There's no statues to them. And this can be a very scary thing for us because we all desire to be acknowledged. Written on the heart of every human being is the desire to be recognized. We want people to see our achievements. We want people to know what's going on with us. We want to be acknowledged in our efforts. And we want to be remembered. We have this uh, fear of being forgotten. And this is exactly the fear that Ecclesiasticus is going to. It's interesting that the Lord writes that on our hearts because it becomes such a great temptation for many of us, like so many of the things written on the the human heart. The desire for love gets twisted, doesn't it? And uh, here the desire for acknowledgement gets twisted so that we have a cult of fame uh, that's probably... uh, uh, unrecognized uh, in this country. It's the, the largest perhaps it's ever been. And perhaps this is the reason for social media. We want people to acknowledge us and to see what we're doing. It's this desire to be recognized uh, by people outside of our sphere. And indeed, this is one of the temptations that Jesus goes under in the wilderness. This is what Satan tempts him with. Uh, you're famous. The angels know you. You won't stub your foot. Uh, you've been acknowledged in the prophets as the coming of the Messiah. Um, surely you won't uh, be allowed to fall. And so uh, it's a temptation for us to be acknowledged by other people when that desire is written on our hearts so that we're acknowledged by the Lord. Truly, he's the one that won't forget us. And this is the job of the church, is to remember those who have gone before us. We are a community of saints. We are a family of saints. And our job is to remember and to look and to kind of... um, to accumulate and to uh, curate, if you will, a collection of those people who have gone before us who will be role models that we can look to. And this is why we have our our walls lined with all of these people and why we remember all those who have gone before us that taught us the scriptures and taught us how to live Christian lives. And indeed, many of those here uh, are only known to a few of us. What we read in Ecclesiasticus is that they're famous because they live peaceably and because they're people of mercy. And so uh, we're starting to hear now these, uh, these uh, framings that we're going to be reading later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he is pointing us in that direction. And indeed, um, perhaps the letter to the Hebrews is a shorter summary of what Ben Sirach does here in Ecclesiasticus. He tells us that the descendants of the godly will have an inheritance, a goodly inheritance for their posterity. That's what we're leaving to those that come after us. Not just our physical children but our spiritual children those in our church family we're supposed to be leaving them a goodly inheritance that inheritance is that they're going to stand by the covenants and that standing by is like that stand firmer that hold fast we've been talking about over and over again we're up in the rigging of this boat that we call the church we're holding on to the ways of god and we're standing by his covenants, standing by his promises and the ways in which he tells us to live And so this is what Jesus goes to. He goes to that rigging. He goes to that uh, piece about what it is that we're supposed to hold firm to. He gives us a picture of what it looks like to live the Christian life. And he does this at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This in Matthew chapter 5 is how he begins the Sermon on the Mount. And the foundation that he lays before the rest of the sermon is what we call the Beatitudes. 
And St. Augustine, if many of you have been in the church for a while, knows that uh, I like to go to St. Augustine regularly to talk about how it is that he arranged the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 6 and makes them this one seamless pattern where he weaves them all together. We don't have time to go through all of that today, but we're going to pick up a few of those threads. Uh, First and foremost, we have to recognize that there are seven Beatitudes here. Seven Beatitudes that the Lord gives us. They're divided into three and four. The first three are attitudes that we're supposed to have. It's the the way of of Christian living. It's the attitude um, that we're supposed to have. Then the next four, the actions that we're supposed to take. So he starts with three attitudes and then he goes to four actions to have seven Beatitudes. The others, if you count them by yourselves, you may say, gee, it looks like there's eight or nine here. Uh, The eighth and the ninth are results or consequences of these attitudes and actions we have. So the first one of these three is in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the fundamental thing that we have to understand and that Moses and Joshua keep going to, right? Behold, the Lord's your God. He's your God. You're supposed to be the people. You're not God, right? He's holy, you're not. That's the fundamental understanding. When we recognize that, then we're poor in spirit. We recognize, oh, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I'm not holy. God's holy, and I'm not. When we recognize our poverty, when we recognize that we lack, that God is all good and all holy, and we are not, then we have poverty of spirit. And when we recognize that, often we want to dismiss it and we want to turn it away. And this is an attitude that Jesus says we're supposed to hold on to, this poverty of spirit, the recognition of our distinctness uh, from God. And then the second attitude that we're supposed to have is mourning. So again, we're not supposed to dismiss that poverty. We're supposed to mourn it. Once we recognize that we are lacking, we're supposed to mourn that sin, that thing that separates us from God. It's so tempting when we recognize it to dismiss it. It's tempting to excuse it, to make excuses for it. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to mourn it. And we're not only supposed to mourn our own sins, but we're supposed to be mourning the sins of others. If we mourn the sins of others, we can't judge them. We can't criticize them. We can't belittle them. Because we're saying, I am falling short and you're falling short too. I mourn my sin, and I mourn yours as well. When we're truly mourning the sins of our neighbor, we have no spirit left to judge them. So we recognize our lacking of holiness, we mourn it, and then we have a meekness about it. That is, uh, we're not going to defend it. We're not going to, again, excuse it. We're not going to make excuses for it. Uh, we're going to recognize it, and we're going to allow the Lord uh, to, to be the one who uh, shows us mercy and who brings us up into salvation. We're recognizing that it's His strong arm that's going to save us. When we recognize that we're meek, that we don't have the strength, that we don't have the power, the authority to bring ourselves into salvation, we recognize uh, our own inadequacy in saving ourselves, and we don't try to do it by making excuses and justifying ourselves. All that's left is God's strong arm to bring us up out of salvation. So this is the attitude of the Christian life. 
recognizing the poverty that we have, mourning it, and acknowledging it with meekness, that God is the one who's going to save us. Now we have four actions that we're supposed to be taking. And the first action is one of desire. The heart has to desire goodness. Every parent or anyone who's spent any time with children knows the big difference between somebody who does the chore they're supposed to do because they have to do it, and the person who does it because they want to do it. It is night and day, right? You know it if you've worked in the workplace, the difference between an employee who does a job because they have to do it and a person who does it because they love their job. It's night and day, and the work that they do is night and day different. So the Lord says the first thing that we have to have is a desire, a hunger, a thirst to do the things of God. We're not doing the things of God or following the commandments because we have to. We're doing it because we hunger and thirst to do them. So that's the first of the actions that we see in, in verse 6. The second is to be merciful. And he says, if we're merciful, then we will receive mercy. Whoop. Right? That's where we all take a big gulp. And you remember that this is mirrored in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses as, in other words, in the same way that we forgive those who trespass against us. So we're setting ourselves up in the Lord's Prayer. I'm not sure why we say it, right? Forgive me the way I forgive others. That's not how I want it to work, right? Don't use me as the standard, then I'm going to have to change the way that I forgive. But that's exactly the way that Jesus explains mercy. We're going to receive mercy in the same way that we give it. Remember, this mercy that we receive, though, is not uh, an excusing of our sin. It's not a justifying. It's not a passing over. To receive mercy, we have to confess and say, The consequence of my sin is death. Out of your love, Lord, give me life. So that's the mercy that we're supposed to participate in. The third action is that we're supposed to be pure in heart. And my favorite philosopher Kierkegaard says that purity of heart is to will one thing, the will of God. So we're always seeking the will of God. We're always seeking His will. And this goes to that listening to the Lord, right? This daily practice of attending and listening to Him with that paper and pencil in our hands because we're wanting to know what God's will is. We're continually seeking it. We're stepping this way and we're stepping that way. Constantly with an eye, a focus on uh, discerning the ways of God. And then finally, we're supposed to be peacemakers. And of course, peace is a really confused term in our society because it's been mistaken for appeasement, right? It's been mistaken for compromise. This is not the peace that the Lord is talking about. We have peace in Him. We have peace when we both come together and we say, you and I, we've got a problem. We need to figure out what the Lord's will is, right? So we have to have a desire that for agreement. We have to have a desire for peace. We have to recognize and acknowledge we've got a problem and then say we don't want to stay there. We're not going to stay in our hurt feelings. We're not going to stay in our upset. We're not going to stay in our moodiness. We're going to actively move forward and figure out what's God's will for this. And that's a responsibility that we all have. We can't stay in that hurtness. We don't get to stay in the mess. We have to be focusing together upon the peace of God. And this is what we're doing in confession, right? We're about to say our confession, and after that we're going to pass the peace. When we pass the peace with one another, we're saying, you and I are okay, right? You and I are okay. In Christ. We're seeking Christ. We're seeking His will together. That's what we're doing in the passing of the peace. Don't mistake it for coffee hour and fellowship. This is us actively saying together we're seeking God's will. And now we've had the four actions. So the three attitudes and the four actions complete for us the basis of Christian living. You'll notice now we get to the eighth number if you are counting blessednesses, but it's actually a result or a consequence. 
Blessed are those, it's not something we do, blessed are those who are persecuted. So if you do all seven of those things, you get to be persecuted. This is where everybody says, hooray, woohoo, right? Just like our heroes, right? Our heroes are people who suffer the consequence for righteousness, right? Our heroes are the ones that storm the beach and die, that parachute and die, who sacrifice themselves, they suffer the consequence. Our heroes are those who showed us the faith and were persecuted for it. Christ himself being our prime example. He says, they persecute and kill me the way that they did the prophets. So they will persecute us as the way that they did Christ. And he says, their reward will be great in heaven. Their reward will be great in heaven. So what is that reward in heaven? What's that going to look like? What's the picture that we're supposed to have? And that's what's answered for us in the revelation to St. John in chapter 7. The thing uh, to say about this, first and foremost, is there's been a lot of theology around uh, the Revelation to St. John uh, and passages like this. In the 19th century, so the early 1800s, there were British and American theologians that uh, talked about millennialism, things like left behind and uh, you know people getting swept up. That is all fictional new theology that was made up in the 19th century. It has no place in the ancient church. It has no place in the traditional church. The traditional church has always had the understanding that God's kingdom has been established, right? He established his kingdom and the tribulation is now. So we are in God's kingdom and we're suffering in the tribulation all at the same time. And anybody who has any picture of the Christian church can recognize that. We know that all over the world right now there are Christians being put in jail. There are Christians being killed. Christians who are suffering for their faith. They are in the tribulation right now. His kingdom is established and we are suffering for it. And that's what we're reading in, in Revelation uh, chapter 7. We're reading about those who, um, who worship God and who had their uh, robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the martyrs, those who have been persecuted for Christ's sake. Right, so we have the church militant, that's us here right now, we are fighting the good fight of faith, right, we are fighting together, we're defending one another, we're in that ship, holding fast, and then we have the church expectant, those saints who are in heaven, who still know the sufferings that we're going through, they are right now currently interceding for us, praying for us, we read that in the Revelation, and they're not doing that without tears, that promise of their tears being wiped away is a not yet promise. It's a now and not yet promise, like so many of the promises. It's happening now, but it's not yet. Do you see what it says? He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs. He will wipe away every tear. That's a now and not yet promise because he hasn't come again. The second coming hasn't happened. We haven't received our resurrected bodies. We're hoping. We're waiting for that to happen. That's the church expectant saying that body is about to come to me. So there at the very bottom of verse 17, he will be their shepherd. He will guide them. He will wipe away every tear. So what's going on in heaven? Not only are they interceding for us, are they praying for us, but they are right now experiencing God's blessedness. They're experiencing His presence in that reward. What is that reward that they get? The reward is worship. But what kind of worship is it? 
It's the kind of worship that takes place in a temple. Do you see this in verse 15? They're before the throne of God. They're before the throne of God. They're serving Him night and day. So it's perpetual. It's continual. It's an everlasting day. He who sits on the throne is there in their presence. And what does it say? He will shelter them. He will shelter them. This is the tabernacle. This is the temple. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the shelter that God provides, but it's not a tent. It's not a building. What is it? He says, He will shelter them with His presence. The shelter that we're provided is God's presence. He is our temple. He is our tabernacle. He is our everlasting life. He is our promise. And He will be with us, remain with us, in His presence this day and forevermore. That is the promise, the reward that we have for the faith which we live. So we finished our will. As I was... uh, going through this uh, process and thinking about who would take the children. I spent a lot of time praying about that. Of course, my hope is that I live to see Judith out of high school, that she's able to grow up and be on her own before Aaron and I pass. I hope there's money for them to be in college. I hope there's a little bit left to give them when we pass. But my true desire is that right now they know the Lord. That they are with Him in His presence now and evermore. And that is my desire for each one of you. That you be in God's presence right now. That you dwell with Him. That you shelter with Him. That you tabernacle with Him. And that you be with Him in His presence this day and for all eternity.